So let's continue the series, uh, Bringing Jesus to Work. Now, I want to start the series by just sharing a, a, a quick illustration I heard at a conference I've never really heard before that really helped me see uh, the dynamics between the church and the congregation. I want to talk about something that I almost never talk about, which is social media, okay? Think about social media. I didn't share this in first service during worship. I felt the Lord said, hey, talk about this for a second. You think about Instagram, Facebook, you think about YouTube, okay? Think about these platforms that has create, changed our world, right? Anybody use one of those platforms, okay? Almost every single one has used one of those platforms. I want to ask you real quick, does Facebook, does Instagram, does YouTube, does this business itself create any content? The only content they do create is probably training content, correct? Who actually creates the content? The users. It's the consumers. It's normal people that creates the content. You see how when the, so, the infrastructure of social media kind of turned everything upside down, right? Because traditionally, who creates the content? Hollywood, big news organization, top down, right? And the consumers just sit at the bottom and just consume, consume. Social media turns that upside down and says, you know what, we're going to unleash you guys. We're going to give you the platform, the training, the ability for you to create your own content and change the world. Correct? That's how social media works. YouTube doesn't create any content except for training content. Same thing as Facebook and Instagram. I heard this training at the church conference I went to, and they said that's how the church should be. Think about that for a second. Think about it for one second. The leaders, the institutional church should create the infrastructure. But who is the one delivering the good? It should be every single person, every person to go and make disciples. You guys should be the content creation. The Bible talks to apostles, prophets, and evangelists, what? To equip the saints. Our job is actually to create the platform, the infrastructure, the training. So you guys are the ones that's going out there to create the content. And that's really the heart of the message of the series, Bring Jesus to Work, right? There's no compartmentalization between the sacred and the secular. Everything is sacred. I can minister behind the pulpit, but you minister somewhere else. You might be ministering on the construction field. You might be ministering in the office. You might be ministering at home. Every single one of us is a sacred minister of the gospel Amen. to disciple not just individuals, but disciple the nation, disciple the community, disciple the states, disciple nations. That's the heart of this message. Now, I want to share in the beginning, just to start, a personal insight, a personal passion I have about this message. Okay? Kind of from my history, my story. Uh, for those who don't know my background, uh, my parents grew up in civil war in China between the, uh, the Communist Mao Party and the Chiang Kai-shek, he's just the KMT party, doesn't matter. My parents, uh, my, my dad was literally born in the middle of Civil War. Um, my grandparents were in such desperation, they were about to give my dad away. And my uncle prevented that from happening. He guarded his crib so they wouldn't give, because they were so poor. That's, so they were refugees, so they had to flee to Taiwan for both sides, my, my, my parents, okay? And I grew up in Taiwan, even though I'm supposedly from mainland China. And then when I was eight, I immigrated to the United States. And when we came to the United States, we, uh, my dad pastored a church in Richmond, Virginia, a small ethnic uh, Chinese-American church. 
And I was an idealistic young person who was passionate for God. And it's not just myself, my friends, my peers. And when, you remember the time when you were teenagers, you, you learned about the things of God. You were filled with the Holy Spirit. You just want to do great things for God. Remember those times? You're passionate about God. But back then, this is my impression, okay? I had only two models to live for Christ in a powerful way. The first model is to either become a missionary or a pastor, okay, and basically take the vow of poverty, okay? And that was my culture. Or get a job. And remind you, I grew up in the Asian American community, so getting a job means either you are a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer, okay? No other really options besides that. Oh, sorry, first you gotta go to Ivy League college. Then you get a job. And then you attend church at least twice a month, okay? And you got to give to the church, obviously. And then if you are really pious, if you're really devout, you might teach Sunday school every once in a while, okay? Or join the deacon's board or elder's board, okay? Those are the two basic options I saw growing up, okay? Anyone else can relate to that? That's like the model, okay? Okay. I don't know about you, but for the generation of young people I grew up with, you got talented, ambitious, hardworking young people who are full of dream and passion. They're, they're, they are high achievers, tons of valedictorians, went to Ivy League College, perfect score SATs. Those two models just didn't really hit the spot for us. It just wasn't quite enough for us. We wanted more. Especially in a world we saw that was full of brokenness, full of poverty, full of injustice, we wanted to make a difference. We've done the Bible study to say the Bible says that you're supposed to be salt and light of the world. But all we hear is just keep going to church. Just keep going to church. Matthew 16, Jesus said, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And we studied this verse. I remember when we studied this passage, it was all theory. It was all conjecture. It was all good ideas. But in every single one of our hearts growing up, we just didn't believe it. We felt like the church was not, not only are we not resisting Hades, we were kind of avoiding it. It was like, Hades coming, we're just like, all right, hope you don't see us. That's how we felt. See, here's the thing about young people. They'll believe whatever you tell them at first. Okay, I got young kids, and I kind of pushed that to the limit. I'm wondering how much will you believe me until you call me out on it. At first... But after they just keep hearing you talk about it, but they never see you living it out, eventually they get skeptical, their heart grows cold. And what they do is they become functional atheists. Do you know what functional atheists are? Functional atheists are those who might not call themselves an atheist. They might call themselves a Christian, but they live like an atheist. There's no faith. There's no engagement with the supernatural. They just live life, but they might go to church every once in a while. And then in the middle of all this, you sent them off to some of the best universities in the world. Which right now is the hotbed of secularism, humanism, and sexual temptation. And you come back home and you're wondering, why are you guys not going to church anymore? Let's go to church. Nah, I don't really want to go to church. No, we go to church. Come on, let's go to church. Nah. You see, the issue is not the activity of going to church. The issue is impact. The issue is what's real. The issue is power. Then you have other very passionate young people who want to make a big difference for God. 
They want to fix what's broken. And when the church doesn't bring a very holistic, practical, comprehensive model to do that, we preach about it, but we don't actually do it. Or at least they don't see us doing it. These idealistic young people, you know what they do? They turn to the world's way to do it. I'm going to read a quote from this book, Life Work, by Daryl Miller. And this is very close to my heart. It's the intro of his book. And when I read it, it just punched my heart. I felt my gut got punched. Okay. So go ahead. Do we have those slides? Okay. A number of years ago, a missionary to the Philippines met with some young people who were thinking about joining the Mao rebels. Pause right here. Who are the Mao rebels? The, the communist. Mao is the, the founder of the Chinese Communist Party in China, which if you study history, the Cultural Revolution did a lot of horrific stuff. Okay? The Mao rebels. These young people were going to go join them from the Philippines. The missionary asked the leader of the group, what he had found so compelling in Maoism that he could not experience in Christianity. The young man's answer proved a profound critique, not of Christ or his claims, but of the reality and practice of Christianity today. Maoism provided us with four essential things. This is what a young person said. One, a unified and coherent vision of the world. No separation of sacred and secular. It's all secular or it's all sacred, right? Number two, a definite goal to live for, to work for, live for, and die for. A compelling reason to live, number two. Three, a call for all people for a common fraternity. And four, a sense of commitment and a mission to spread the good news that there is help for the hopeless. The fact is that the Christian faith in all its beauty seems to be unable to provide us with such a vision. Sadly, the missionary watches young and idealistic turn their backs on what they knew of Christianity, embrace something that will lead to their destruction. That's what communism does. But why? They may have heard the good news of the gospel, but they have not seen the gospel. Do you guys feel the weight of this? I mean, when I read that passage, Pastor Ron gave me that book, Life um, Work, to read. When I read the intro... I normally don't read intro, I jump straight to the content. When I read the intro, man, I feel the weight because this is what I felt growing up. I'm always like, what are we supposed to be? What are we supposed to be? This is the reason why, even though Karl Marx, Marxism, the theories of Marxism has caused some of the biggest devastation in the world we have ever seen, is still alive and well today. I want to tell you why. It's because you can take this to the bank. Until Christ's return, etched in every single one of our hearts is the desire to fix the world's problem. We are longing for a savior. We're longing for a system, a way to correct the pains and the depression and the brokenness we see in the world. We are always longing for that system. And there's only two ways to do it. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of man, which is the kingdom of darkness. Either the body of Christ actually do the stuff, we take these principles that we learn and we apply in every arena of life, in your family, in your work, in education, in entertainment, in healthcare, in every arena, and people see us doing that, or we lead a vacuum for the kingdom of man, humanism, our own ability to fill that vacuum. I'm a little bummed out that Globalism and humanism and secularism is kind of consuming our culture today. I got young kids. I'm a little bummed out by that. But 
I understand why that's the case. Sometimes we just curse the darkness. We don't try to understand what's happening. Well, after centuries of the follower of Jesus Christ retreating ourselves from the marketplace, retreating ourselves from entertainment, retreating ourselves from these realms, saying, you know what, it's, 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 it's out there, so I'm going to just, I don't want to see it. I'm going to put my head in the sand. We have left this void, this vacuum for the forces of the world to encompass it. We no longer, when I say we, I mean just the church at large, no longer know how to bring the kingdom of God into the system of the world, to infiltrate it and impact it. So many of my peers growing up, and many of young people probably today, who are so passionate about Jesus, either become functional atheists, they go to church sometimes, but there's no real relationship, there's no real impact, or they join the Marxism movement because they bought in a compelling reason to change the world. And my heart grieves. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 20. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. The problem is people haven't seen the power. They haven't seen the impact. But I believe right now it's ripe for the church to rediscover her power, her impact. Do you guys agree? You guys agree? Time for us to not just talk about it, right? For us to actually engage. And we're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about what does it mean to worship, not just on church on Sunday, not just in the children's ministry, not just in life group, but worship in everywhere we go, everything we do. Now, before we discover our, power, uh, our impact and our power, we have to do something first, Okay. We have to realign ourselves. And I want to begin by sharing just a quick story, help you remember this principle of alignment. So about 10 years ago, I was at a job I really did not like. I didn't understand workers' worship. I was dreading my job. And I had this bright idea that I was going to be a lawyer. I just, I don't know, came out of nowhere. I'm like, I feel like they make a lot of money, right? I'm going to go be an attorney. How hard could it be, be an attorney? Well, I'm like, how do you become an attorney? Like, what do you do? Well, you got to take the LSAT. Not realizing that's one of the hardest tests ever, okay? I'm like, sure, no problem. I took the GREs. I'll take the LSAT. I was too cheap to pay for the class. I was too cheap to even buy the book. I went to Crown Point Library. I have borrowed a textbook. And I just basically studied for like two, three weeks for the LSAT. Again, not, again, not knowing how hard this thing was. That fateful morning when I was going to Valparaiso University to take the LSAT, okay, I still remember that crisp, cold morning. It just snowed, but it wasn't too bad, you know. And I was driving on Route 30 to go to Valparaiso University. Something happened to me that has never happened before. I hit black ice. I did two 360s, and I got stuck in the snowbank. This kind of stuff doesn't happen to me, okay. I'm not a risk taker. I'm like, what is going on? I'm middle of the snowbank in the middle of meeting. I'm stuck in snow. My car won't go anywhere. And I did something else I've never done before. I hitchhiked my way to Valparaiso University. <laughs> I got out of my car. I literally did a thumb thing. It's probably easier when people see my car stuck in the, you know, in the snowbank. Some nice gentleman, he was like an angel, came out of nowhere. His Jeep was so warm. I just remember that. So nice. He drove me to Valparaiso University, and I ended up taking the LSAT. Okay, it was a miserable experience. It was a tough test. I think I was still in shock. Afterwards, so it turns out Marissa Abbott 
was taking LSAT that same day. She was in the first service, so she confirmed my story. I didn't know she was taking it. I was like, hey, Marissa, after the test, like, hey, Marissa, how do you feel about dropping me off? Oh, yeah, where? Like right in the middle of Route 30, okay? <laughs> so she dropped me off, called AAA. AAA came, and they, like, tugged, like, slowly tugged my car out of the, of the, the medium covered in snow. And amazingly, amazingly, I was unhurt. My car was still in one piece, like literally still in one piece. So I drove home. But when I drove home, I drove like this. I have to hold my steering wheel like this to go straight. Because if I held it straight, it was going to go off this way. So the whole time driving like this, probably 30 miles an hour on Route 30, because my alignment was completely off, Okay. And while I was doing that, I felt the Lord speak to me. He says, this is how he feels when you're misaligned. You cannot drive very fast. You cannot drive very far. And you cannot be very efficient. In that moment, the Lord said to me, Andrew, you are completely misaligned with me right now. I was like, I wish you told me not to become an attorney before I took the LSAT. (laughs) But God knew how stubborn I was. He needed that to turn me around. That's probably the truth. He probably was telling me the whole time. I just ignore him, just knowing me, okay? That's me. But I told you that story because that's the power of misalignment. That's what misalignment looks like. You cannot go very far. You cannot go very fast. And you're not going to be very efficient. For our church, the church of Jesus Christ, the ecclesia, the body, to recapture its power, we have to align to this powerful principle I'm going to share with you today. This powerful principle is that where you work is your sacred ground. And your one takeaway, your one homework assignment for you today, one thing you remember from today is that next time you go to work, just think about when's the next time you go to work. It might be this afternoon. It might be tonight. It might be tomorrow morning. When you step into your work arena, I want you to think, this is my sacred ground. I'm going to process that a little bit more for you. I think one of the reasons we struggle to see work as worship and as a sacred place is because of the confusion over calling. A lot of times we're thinking, man, this is great, awesome calling for me, and I'm not there yet, so this work I do right now is worthless. I don't really care about it. We're confusing a very specific call of God with the general call of God. When we think about calling, a lot of times we think about when Paul got blinded on the way to Damascus, right? Or Abraham being called out. Like those are very specific calls. But they are general calls of God in our lives. For example, there's a general call of our lives uh, for every single one of us to disciple nations, right? To love God and love all neighbors. Like, you don't need a burning bush to say we're supposed to disciple, make disciples of all nations, right? It's in the Bible. Jesus already said it. You don't need a burning bush for that, right? One of the most underrated, unheard, but most important call of our lives is that our work is sacred and is worship. Now, some of you might say, well, I thought work has been cursed by God. You're referring to Genesis chapter 3. When God says, curse is the ground because of you, through painful toil, you'll eat food from it after Adam and Eve sinned. But remember, this happened after the curse, the fall of man. It was the result of the fall. And guess what Jesus came to do? He came to redeem all things. He came to redeem our hearts, our souls. He came to redeem our relationship, our brokenness. But he also came to redeem the original intent of work. Check this out. In the beginning, the Bible says, God created heaven and earth. It didn't say God sat on the beach and sipped his lemonade. 
in the beginning. God is a worker. He worked. You know what? He, you know, the Bible talks about the seven days. We focus on the seven days rest. But guess what? He worked for those other six days. We got to understand working is part of God's character. It's part of his being. And when he made us, he gave us his responsibility. He gave us his blessing to work alongside, alongside with him, to collaborate with him. Stuart Briscoe has a great quote. I love it. He says, paradise, right? Paradise, Garden of Eden, was a vocation and not a vacation. The Lord God took the man and put in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. In fact, when there's a new heaven and new earth, when Christ returns, what do you think we'll be doing the whole time? Sitting on the harp, or maybe sitting on a cloud playing harp, sitting on the beach sipping lemonade, maybe sometimes part of it. But I believe we'll be largely doing glorious work, collaborating with God. We've got to understand our ability to work is one of God's greatest blessings. It, it is sacred. You know the word vocation comes from the Latin word that says summon or call. The original intent of vocation means a calling from God. But few Christians see work as sacred today, and few churches preach about it. For us to truly restore the impact of the ecclesia, right, the called out one, the body of Christ, we need to recapture this essence of work as worship. I want to quickly show a pie chart that I showed at Marcus Share. Okay, go ahead and show that pie chart. What I did, just to illustrate this point, is that, you know, the Bible calls that we are living sacrifice. We ought to be living sacrifice. Is that, you guys understand what living, it means that we are sacrificed unto the Lord, but he doesn't want us dead. He wants to be living sacrifices. Everything we do needs to be worship, right? But if you reduce, in your mind, if you reduce worship and sacred realm just to the time you're in the church, this is the impact. So what I did is I took out all the sleeping hours, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You take out whatever, six to eight hours you sleep Day, you take that out. So these are your waking hours. Most of us, most of you, I mean, obviously I work in the church, so take me out. But most of you spend no more than three or four hours in the church building a week. But look at the rest of the time. I know you can't really see it very well. That little gray slit is hours at the church. But on the bottom is your time at work. And then on the left, you've got time at home, others' time, entertainment, carpooling, traveling, whatever else you do. My point is this, is for you, be etching your head, we cannot reduce our time of worship, our time of sacredness, only our time in the church. We are offering Christ just this tiny bit of our lives. Jesus came and died on the cross and resurrected so we can give this tiny percentage of our lives to him. It shouldn't be this way. We are living sacrifices. Amen. We need a renewal of our minds to treat work differently. No longer should work be something we have to strive just so we can get to the weekend. I've been there before. I got to work hard. I got to pay my dues. So on the weekend, I can relax and do what I, really, what I really enjoy doing. Okay? Anyone ever been there before? That can't be our mentality. Our work, it's a sacred call. So, when is the next time you're going to work? Maybe it's coming out of your bedroom because you're about to homeschool your kids. 
Maybe it's when you put on your uniform. Maybe you're driving to the parking lot of a construction site. That is your sacred ground. Do you remember Moses when he was at the burning bush? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Now, I'm going to help you guys remember this. Um, My goal, again, that when you enter into work the next time, you remember it's sacred ground. So what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to take off my shoes. Preaching without shoes on is a little weird. Hopefully it will stick out to you a little bit. I was going to take off my socks, but thank God I'm not going to do that right now. (laughs) My wife is like, that's maybe a little too much. But what I'm trying to do is help you guys remember. Think about for a second. I am on sacred ground right now. Not just because this is a church building or because this is a pulpit. This is a sacred ground right now because I am at work. I am at work right now. Okay? I've prepared hours for this message. This is, I'm on the clock, whatever you want to call it. I am at work right now. That's why this is my sacred ground. But it's the same for you. What is your sacred ground? I invite you, actually, if it's appropriate, to go to work. Next time you go to work and take off your shoes. Now, I know in some places, if you're in the hospital or, you know, construction site, might not be appropriate. Pastor Andrew told me that. No. If it's appropriate to remind yourself to make a mark, take off your shoes, even for a minute, and say, this is sacred ground. This is the realm which I'm going to collaborate, engage with God because this is worship. So, here's the question. What do you do? So, we have established why it's so important for us to treat work as worship. To recapture the sense of power and impact the church is supposed to have, right? We talk about what do we need to do. We need to go and... and, and, and and pray over our territory that God's given us and say, this is sacred ground. But how do you live a lifestyle so it's not just a one-time thing? I'm going to give you guys three very basic principles, okay, that you must do to maintain a lifestyle of work is worship. Okay, you guys ready? Yes. You guys know me. I like to make it really practical. The first one is this. Ask God to be your boss. Ask God to be your boss. Colossians 3.23, work willingly at whatever you do as though you're working for the Lord rather than for people. I know you guys heard this passage before. I know you guys heard this a million times. But make this real. Don't just be like, well, theoretically, God's my boss. No. Take some time and ask God to be your boss. Now, I'm going to say practically, what does that mean when God's your boss? I'm going to make it personal to me. Okay, I was just talking to Mark about this. This is very personal to me. Because when God's your boss, okay, and he assigned you this work, maybe not forever, but for this season, at least for today, he assigned you this work, should you ever complain about your job or your, about your boss ever again? You shouldn't. Now, I'm a complainer, so I'm not pointing the finger, but I'll tell you why I complain. I complain because I forget that God's my boss. We forget this is a sacred ground. When we forget, we get negative when we have a bad attitude. I'm guilty of that as anybody. 
That's why I want to remind you, when this is your sacred ground, the first thing you got to do is, God is my boss. What else do you do if God's your boss? I'll tell you something else you ought to do. Okay, people ask me, what is something practical I can do to change the world, to impact culture, make a dent for Jesus? Well, let me ask you, first of all, do you show up to work on time? And do you work really, really hard? Because if you don't do that, I don't care how anointed you think you are, what great calling you think you have, it doesn't matter. Show up to work on time and work really, really hard. Or you don't have a witness. Again, I'm talking about your work here. I'm not talking about necessarily your job. Your work could be homeschooling your kids. Your work could be part-time. It could be full-time. It could be volunteer work. You, you see what I'm talking about? And if you're a young person, guess what's your work right now? You might not have your job, but what's your work right now? School. That's your work. Or maybe cutting grass for your dad. Just playing that scene there for my kids. But that's your work. Or washing dishes. But that's your work. You guys see what I'm talking about? I'm not talking about your specific job. You know, you don't know my boss and you don't know my working condition. I don't care. What is your work? That's your sacred realm. Are you working hard and are you on time? That's your sacred realm because God's your boss. Now, I want to talk really quickly to those who are business owners. I got good news and bad news for you. The bad news is your business is no longer your business. And I know that's tough because you work so hard to build it up to make it profitable. It's like you're a baby. I get it. So the bad news is that's no, if you want work to be sacred, your business is no longer your business because God's your boss. It's his business. The good news, check it out. The good news is it's no longer your business anymore. You no longer have to be alone. You don't have to make these tough decisions by yourself, okay? You don't have to be an island by yourself. You have a father who says, I want to give you this business so you can be a blessing to your family and also to your community. And I'm going to help you and collaborate with you to do that. That's the power of work as worship. And when God's your boss, guess what? He's not just a figurehead. He's not like the king of England or queen of England. He's not just a figurehead and just waves every once in a while. If God's your boss, you actually have to talk to him. You actually have to ask him what he thinks. You might have to ask him about your employee benefits. When you're scoping the plan for 2023, you might need to actually invite him and say, hey, boss, what do you think about this? This is practical. This is real. First step, ask God to be your boss. Second step, ask your boss for a kingdom vision for your work. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 to 10. You guys are familiar, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is called the dominion mandate. This is what Pastor Ron preached last week. Occupy till I come. Don't wait for Jesus to come and save the day. You're sitting on the bench just waiting for him to come. Roll up your sleeves, get your hand dirty, and get in the game. When he returns, I don't want to be like, well, you know, I was waiting for you. I want to be like, hey, I got a couple battle wounds here. I skinned my knees a little bit. My jersey got a little dirty. I got in the game a little bit. That's what this means. Occupy till I come. You got to get engaged. My point is this. Doesn't matter where you work. 
I don't care your territory is that you are the CEO of a Fortune 500 company or you're a volunteer, a part-time employee. It doesn't matter what your territory is. God has a vision for your work to make it more kingdom. He has a vision for you to usher in his principle, his righteousness, his love, his relational style into where you are today. And you need to ask him to give you specific instruction on how to do that. I'm going to give you some some example to make this very practical. For example, if your territory, your job is simply, your work is simply a cashier at the checkout line in the grocery store. Maybe the Lord will give you a vision for this. For every person you check out, you are going to present a genuine joy and smile on your face to that person. Now, that's not easy, especially when people are rude, they're in a hurry, or they got chains, and they got this, and they got that, and they got coupons. It's work. But you are kingdomizing that territory and that situation. Maybe if you are a leader, you lead a team. Maybe the kingdom vision God's given you is to, guess what? Treat them not as cogs in the systems, just another piece of tool. Treat them like individuals and say, you know what, I want to learn about you. I want to care about you. I want to learn your family's names, your kids' names, your, your, your spouse's names so I can care for you. I was talking to Colin about this, and Colin oversees a couple different teams, and several of his teammates are actually overseas who he will probably never meet in person. It's always through a computer. And he's trying to get to know them and get to know their family because he wants to care for them. He's like, hey, what are your kids' names? They're like, why are you? Are you trying to stalk me? What's going on here? Because they're not used to that culture. It's all just business professional. You're here, here just to fit, fit a need. All you, all you offer is this position you give, what you can do. And Colin's like, no, you're a person. I want to engage with you relationally. I want to care for you. He's kingdomizing his leadership. You know, for my wife, she's, trying, she's a stay-at-home mom. And she's kingdomizing that situation. And for her, the vision that God gave her, gave her was that when my kids flip out over things, I don't know about your kids, which is probably perfect. My kids flip out over little things, right? The Lord says, don't just address the behavior. You got to address the behavior too, but address the heart. Because God cares about what they do, but he also cares about who they are. So instead of saying, hey, knock it off, don't do that again, my wife will engage with their heart, which could take a lot more time and a lot more energy. But she's kingdomizing that situation. You see what I'm saying? I'm just giving you ideas. You need to, don't copy these. Go to your boss and ask him, how do I kingdomize my work? I was talking to Hotam. For those who don't know, Hotam opens a, he has a bakery and a coffee shop and whatnot, and he makes bagels. I, got, I botched this whole example in first service because I couldn't figure out what's what. But apparently for bagels, there's a cheap and easier way to do it by steaming it. Okay? It only takes like 30 seconds. But the Lord gave Hotam the vision to boil it, which takes up to two minutes. Which you're like, oh, it's not a big difference. Well, when you're making a thousand bagels, it makes a big difference. But no one else knows this. But he says, you know what? I am going to have to boil my bagels because it tastes better. It has a different texture. And that's excellence. And that's the kingdom vision that God gave him. And to do that, he has to innovate. He has to lower his overhead. He has to do whatever it takes to get that job done. You see how practical this is? You see how feasible, how tangible this is to kingdomize your work? Maybe you work in the industry 
that has a certain reputation, shall we say. Well, those contractors, they never show up on time. They never do what they're supposed to do. Oh, those salespersons, they always sell you things you don't need. Oh, those politicians, they're always in it for themselves. If you're in one of those industries, you're in one of those realms, don't just accept it for what it is. Kingdomize those industry. Redeem it for whatever, for the, for the Lord. You know, you're a contractor, then be reliable. Don't make up stuff. Be a man or a woman of your word. If you're a salesperson, canonize it. Don't just sell things that people don't need. Care for the person. You guys know what I mean. If your work is a sacred ground, then you need to bring the vision of heaven to it. It doesn't have to happen overnight. But ask God to give you specific day-by-day, moment-by-moment vision so progressively your work becomes more like heaven. Does that make sense? Again, but this vision can't come from the pulpit. It has to come from your boss, the king. Step one, ask God to be your boss. Step two, ask him for a specific vision to your work. Step three, this is the toughest one. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is the key. Count the cost. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 25, all athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away. We do it for an eternal prize. There's a cost to this race. There's training required. It's always fun to talk about vision. It's always fun to talk about kingdomizing things, to dream about it, the vision setting uh, sessions about it. But for me, it comes down to not just talking about it, talking about the fun stuff. Let's talk about the cost, the price. There's so many people who love thinking about how they could change the world for God before they see the price tag. You know, if my wife and I are talking about renovating our kitchen, it's always fun to dream about it, right? Oh, we'll do this countertop and we'll do this backsplash and yeah, it would be cool if we did this and this. None of that's serious until we go online and say, how much that new fridge costs? $3,000. You want granite? How much is laminate? When we start talking about the costs, it's when we know we're serious. Does that make sense? That's when you know you're really serious. I know people who have actually trained and completed the Ironman race, which is a ridiculous, crazy race. And I know there's people myself included, who loves talking about maybe one day doing it. <laughs> How do I know the difference? It's not rocket science. One person's running five miles a day, 10 miles a day. Other person is still Googling Ironman and looking at pictures, <laughs> Instagram photos. And I see Sean soaking his body in, in cold water after a run because he needs to make sure, deal with his inflammation. And I'm watching it while eating potato chips from my Porsche. Like, that looks painful. It's always fun to dream about it. And then you got people who's actually talking about the cost. Jesus actually used this, talk about this principle in Luke 14. He says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man begin to build and was not able to finish. See, that principle of counting a cost is not just a good business principle. It's a great kingdom principle. 
Everybody wants to partner with God until you see the price tag. So what does that mean? It means that I know men who says, God is my boss. He's my CEO. I got to run a business, but I need to talk to him. So that means every night I have to go to bed by 930. I don't have luxury to go on Netflix and binge for a couple hours. I don't have luxury to go on my social media and binge for whatever hours. I got to go to bed at 930 so I can wake up at 530 every morning and meet with my boss. That's a cost. Now, again, let's be clear. That cost is nothing compared to the great reward. But there is immediate cost, and we'll be fools not to talk about the cost. That's what I mean by cost. How about this one? I know businesses who says, you know what, the industry price, okay, it's not fair. It's too high. That's not kingdom. So we need to lower the price for our customers, but we also need to stay profitable. So what do we need to do? We need to innovate. We need to be more efficient. We got to cut costs. We got to lower this. We got to lower that. We got to work hard so that we can create a great price and still remain profitable. That's what the cost means. Maybe you're an entrepreneur, you're a business owner again, and you have an employee who's very productive, very talented, but they don't treat people right. They're misaligned with your value to care for people, and you have to let them go. Maybe, again, you know in your heart you need to be joyful, engaging customers all day, but because of unforgiveness and bitterness and hurt in your heart, you just have a hard time doing that. So you say, you know what? I got to go to Celebrate Recovery. I got to go to transformational healing class. I got to do something to get this bitterness out so I can be joyful for my customers. You see how practical the cost is? It may be as simple as, you know what, I'm a leader and I don't know how to lead people. So every day I'm going to reserve two hours to read leadership books so I can lead better. Or it might be a little more complicated, like you realize that you're a leader But in your heart, you don't love your employees. You don't love your team. You can pretend and act and draw some emotions, but in the day, they're just they're just pieces of the puzzle to get your to get your job done for your resume. So what you do is you get before God and you pay the ultimate price. You say, God, kill me. Break my heart for those you have put on my team. Change me fundamentally in within this heart. I can't even get there on my own. I can't care for them. All I can think about is what they do. I want to be caring for them individually. I can't do it. So you pay the ultimate cost. You say, Lord, kill me. Make me a living sacrifice. And for those who have ever said that prayer, you know that's painful. You know that's uncomfortable. You know there's a powerful cost associated with that. I love this perspective of sacrifice because it gives real meaning, real meaning to spiritual discipline. You know, the spiritual discipline that God gives us, like fasting, praying, going to church, intercession, reading your Bible, those things don't exist in a vacuum. They have meaning in the context of a mission, okay? You know people who like to go to the gym, and they work out, and it's all show muscles. They work out so they can look good on Instagram. I don't really know people, but I've seen people in the gym like that. I'm like, really, is that a camera? What, what are they doing? <laughs> okay. 
That's show muscle. And then you got people who work out because they got to go to war and they got to carry their heavy artillery and they will die and they can't protect their family and they can't protect their nation unless they're in shape. You guys see the difference? Show muscle and work muscles. A lot of times the reason we struggle with spiritual discipline is because we don't have a compelling vision. We have, no, we have no reason to do it. I don't need to hear from God because I own my own business and I'm my own boss. I do whatever I want. I don't need to hear from the Lord. I have no vision to kingdomize my work so there's no place to go. I don't need to read my Bible. I don't need to pray. I don't have an adversary. But when you lock on to that God's your boss and he's giving, he's giving you a compelling vision for your nine to five on a regular basis, all of a sudden you're locked in. You're like, well, I need this. I need to get on my knees. I need to fast and pray because I don't know how to deal with this difficult employee. This employee is killing me. I can't love this person well. God, break my heart. Now you got a compelling vision to get on your knees and cry out to God and read your Bible and study. I think one of the reasons why we struggle with spiritual discipline is not a discipline problem. It's a boredom problem. It's a boredom problem. Like the young people I talked about in the very beginning, we don't have a compelling vision. But I'm telling you, the God I know, the Holy Spirit I know, the apostles and prophets who laid their life down has a compelling vision. Where have we lost it? And what are we speaking to our young people? What are we speaking to my sons and daughters and your sons and daughters? What is this all about? We just keep going to church? We keep going to a building and we listen to some random Asian guy talk? Or... Is there a compelling mission bigger than what I think, bigger than what we feel, but a direct message from God saying, kingdomize your work, your territory, big, small, doesn't matter. God has given you a specific vision to make your work sacred. That's what's going to change our culture, and that's what's going to change our nation. So, in conclusion, just imagine for me for a second. Just everyone close your eyes. Entertain me for a second. I want you to imagine the next time you go to work. It might be, again, this afternoon. Some of you are going right out to the cafe to work in the cafe, maybe. Maybe some of you are going third server to watch kids. It might be tonight. You're going to work. Imagine that moment to be sacred ground. Not because your job is so great, not because your boss is so holy, or that the work itself is so exciting or meaningful. It's because God created you to work. He designed you and He's commissioned you to bring His kingdom to your work. And it is sacred. How does that change your life? How does that change your outlook? How does that change your family's life? How does that change your boss's life? How does that change your coworker's life? How does that change our world? Just imagine for a second. Ask God to be your boss. Ask him for a personal, specific strategy to kingdomize your work. And finally, get ready to pay the cost. I invite you to take off your sandals today and impact our nation. Amen. Hey, we love you. Have a great week. Kingdomize your work. Amen. Hey, we love to pray with you if you guys have any 
things in your heart. We'll have a team up here to pray with you. Have a great Sunday. Have a great week.